a punch in the nose. Here's a dirty trick you can pull on a baby. It may illustrate something about your personality. It certainly illustrates something about visual processing. Tie a ribbon around the baby's leg. Tie the other end to a bell. At first, she seems to be randomly moving her limbs. Soon, however, the infant learns that if she moves one leg, the bell rings. Soon she is happily and preferentially moving that leg. The bell rings and rings and rings. Now cut the ribbon. The bell no longer rings. Does that stop the baby? No. She still kicks her leg. Something is wrong. So she kicks harder. Still no sound. She does a series of rapid kicks in sequence. Still no success. She gazes up at the bell, even stares at the bell. This visual behavior tells us she is paying attention to the problem. Scientists can measure the brain's attentional state even with the diaper and breast milk crowd because of this reliance on visual processing. This story illustrates something fundamental about how brains perceive their world. As babies begin to understand cause and effect relationships, we can determine how they pay attention by watching them stare at their world. The importance of this gazing behavior cannot be underestimated. Babies use visual cues to show they are paying attention to something, even though nobody taught them to do that. The conclusion is that babies come with a variety of preloaded software devoted to visual processing. That turns out to be true. Babies display a preference for patterns with high contrast. They seem to understand the principle of common fate. Objects that move together are perceived as part of the same object, such as stripes on a zebra. They can discriminate human faces from non-human equivalents and seem to prefer them. They possess an understanding of size related to distance, that if an object is getting closer and therefore getting bigger, it is still the same object. Babies can even categorize visual objects by common physical characteristics. The dominance that vision displays behaviorally begins in the tiny world of infants. And it shows up in the even tinier world of DNA. Our sense of smell and color vision are fighting violently for evolutionary control, for the right to be consulted first whenever something on the outside happens. And vision is winning. In fact, about 60% of our smell-related genes have been permanently damaged in this neural arbitrage, and they are marching toward obsolescence at a rate fourfold faster than any other species sampled. The reason for this decommissioning is simple. The visual cortex and the olfactory cortex take up a lot of neural real estate. In the crowded zero-sum world of the subscalp, something has to give. Whether looking at behavior, cells, or genes, we can observe how important visual sense is to the human experience. Striding across our brain like an out-of-control superpower, giant swaths of biological resource are consumed by it. In return, our visual system creates movies, generates hallucinations, and consults with previous information before allowing us to see the outside. It happily bends the information from other senses to do its bidding and, at least in the case of smell, seems to be caught in the act of taking it over. Is there any point to trying to ignore this juggernaut, especially if you are a parent, educator, or business professional? You don't have to go any further than the wine experts of Bordeaux for proof. Ideas. I owe my career choice to Donald Duck. I'm not joking. I even remember the moment he convinced me. I was eight years old at the time, and my mother trundled the family off to a showing of an amazing 27-minute animated short called Donald in Math Magic Land. Using visual imagery, a wicked sense of humor, and the wide-eyed wonder of an infant, Donald Duck introduced me to math, got me excited about it. 
From geometry to football to playing billiards, the power and beauty of mathematics were made so real for this nerd in training, I asked if I could see it a second time. My mother obliged, and the effect was so memorable, it eventually influenced my career choice. I now have a copy of those valuable 27 minutes in my own home, and regularly inflict my poor children with it. Donald in Mathmagic Land won an Academy Award for Best Animated Short of 1959. It also should have gotten Teacher of the Year Award. The film illustrates, literally, the power of the moving image in communicating complex information to students. I'd like to suggest a couple of additions to the curriculum of all teachers in training. I also have advice for advertisers and anyone who uses PowerPoint. Teachers should learn the basics of how pictures grab attention. Educators should know how pictures transfer information. There are things we know about how pictures grab attention that are rock solid. We pay lots of attention to color. We pay lots of attention to orientation. We pay lots of attention to size. And we pay special attention if the object is in motion. Indeed, most of the things that threatened us in the Serengeti moved, and the brain has evolved unbelievably sophisticated tripwires to detect it. We even have specialized regions to distinguish when our eyes are moving versus when our world is moving. These regions routinely shut down perceptions of eye movement in favor of the environmental movement. Teachers should learn how to create computer animations. Animation captures the importance not only of color and placement, but also of motion. With the advent of web-based graphics, the days when this knowledge was optional for educators are probably over. Fortunately, the basics are not hard to learn. With today's software, simple animations can be created by anybody who knows how to draw a square and a circle. Simple, two-dimensional pictures are quite adequate. Studies show that if the drawings are too complex or lifelike, they can distract from the transfer of information. Teachers should team with researchers to test the power of images. Though the pictorial superiority effect is a well-established fact for certain types of classroom material, it is not well-established for all material. Data are sparse. Some media are better at communicating some types of information than others. Do pictures communicate conceptual ideas such as freedom and amount better than, say, a narrative? Are language arts better represented in picture form, or are other media styles more robust? Working out these issues in real-world classrooms would provide the answer, and that takes collaboration between teachers and researchers. Communicators should consider using pictures more than words. Less text, more pictures, were almost fighting words in 1982. They were used derisively to greet the arrival of USA Today, a brand new type of newspaper with, as you know, less text, more pictures. Some predicted the style would never work. Others predicted that if it did, the style would spell the end of Western civilization as the newspaper reading public knows it. The jury may be out on the latter prediction, but the former has a powerful and embarrassing verdict. Within four years, USA Today had the second highest readership of any newspaper in the country, and within ten, it was the number one. It still is. First, from the brain rule, we know that pictures are a more efficient delivery mechanism of information than text. Second, the American workforce is consistently overworked, with more things being done by fewer people. Third, many Americans still read newspapers. In the helter-skelter world of overworked Americans, more efficient information transfer may be the preferred medium. As the success of USA Today suggests, the attraction may be strong enough to persuade consumers to reach for their wallet. So, Pictorial information may be initially more attractive to consumers, in part because it takes less effort to apprehend. 
Because it is also a more efficient way to glue information to a neuron, there may be strong reasons for entire marketing departments to think seriously about making pictorial presentations their primary way of transferring information. The initial effect of pictures on attention has been tested. Using infrared eye tracking technology, 3,600 consumers were tested on 1,363 print advertisements. The conclusion? Pictorial information was superior in capturing attention, independent of its size. Even if the picture was small and crowded with lots of other non-pictorial competing elements close to it, the eye went to the visual. The researchers in the study did not check for retention, and, as we learned in the attention chapter, maybe they should have. All of us should toss our PowerPoint presentations. The presentation software called PowerPoint has become ubiquitous, from corporate boardrooms to college classrooms to scientific conferences. What's wrong with that? It's text-based, with six hierarchical levels of chapters and subheads, all words. Professionals everywhere need to know about the incredible inefficiency of text-based information and the incredible effects of images. They need to do two things. Number one, burn their current PowerPoint presentations. Number two, make new ones. Actually, the old ones should be stored, at least temporarily, as useful comparisons. Business professionals should test their new designs against the old to determine which ones work better. A typical PowerPoint business presentation has nearly 40 words per slide. We have a lot of work ahead of us. For your review, here's a summary of the chapter. Let's review the chapter. Vision. Rule number nine. Vision trumps all other senses. Vision is by far our most dominant sense, taking up half of our brain's resources. What we see is only what our brain tells us we see, and it's not 100% accurate. The visual analysis we do has many steps. The retina assembles photons into little movie-like streams of information. The visual cortex processes these streams, some areas registering motion, others registering color, etc. Finally, we combine that information back together so we can see. We learn and remember best through pictures, not through written or spoken words. A tutorial of the chapter is available at www.brainrulesbook.com. Music. Brain rule number 10. Study or listen to boost cognition. Henry Dreyer is a 92-year-old dementia patient living in an assisted living center. Henry sits alone in a wheelchair in the middle of a room, eyes downcast, face empty. His body seems vacant too. In the documentary film featuring him, Henry is described by famed neurologist Oliver Sacks as inert, maybe depressed, unresponsive, and almost unalive. Henry has barely spoken to anyone in the decade he's lived at the center. This is not how he used to be, his daughter relates. Henry was outgoing for most of his life, blessed with a passionate love affair for the Bible and for dancing and singing, it was not unusual for him to spontaneously burst out into song in public. On this day, Henry is part of a project helping elderly people reconnect by listening to music they love. Henry is given an iPod loaded with music. As soon as Henry hears the music, Henry starts making a noise, like a horn. Suddenly, Henry's eyes grow wide. His face instantly lights up, a bit contorted. Henry grabs his wrists and starts swaying, smiling, and singing. Henry becomes alive. When the iPod is turned off, Henry doesn't slink back into silence. 
He becomes articulate, funny, and very enthusiastic. Do you like music? Someone asks off camera. Henry answers, I'm crazy about music. You play beautiful music, beautiful sounds. What was your favorite music when you were young? Cab Calloway, Henry responds, then starts scatting. He sings, I'll be home for Christmas with accurate pitch, wonderful emotion, and occasionally correct lyrics. He is asked, what does music do to you? Face still animated, arms now gesticulating with purpose, Henry responds, it gives me the feeling of love, romance. I figure right now the world needs to come into music, singing. You've got beautiful music here, beautiful, lovely. I feel a band of love. <laughs> Dr. Sachs is delighted. In some sense, Henry is restored to himself, he enthuses. He has remembered who he is, and he's reacquired his identity for a while through the power of music. I barely heard Dr. Sachs because I started tearing up. It's one of the most moving videos I've ever seen. How does music light up the brain, as it clearly did for Henry? What effects does it have on young and old? What does listening to music do to the brain compared with being trained in music? Scientists have intensively investigated these questions. In asking whether exposure to music produces benefits in non-musical cognitive domains, scientists have looked at academic areas, like reading and math. They've looked at general intelligence. They've studied the effects of music on speech, physical development, and mood. And now we think we have an understanding of at least some of the effects of music on cognition. Why think instead of know? Music research is complicated, starting with the fact that not everyone agrees what music is or why it exists. How would you define music? Scientists aren't sure how the brain defines music, in part because there is no universal agreement about exactly what music is. What may be annoying, unorganized environmental noise to a person raised in culture A at time point A might be rapturous, organized, beautiful music to a person raised in culture B at time point B. For example, in 1971, George Harrison of the Beatles organized a benefit concert called the Concert for Bangladesh with sitar master Ravi Shankar. Shankar tuned his instrument before performing, an event heard over the loudspeakers by the mostly Western audience. The crowd clapped and cheered with wild enthusiasm. As they began to settle, Ravi addressed them. Thank you. If you like our tuning so much, I hope you will enjoy the playing more. <laughs> Rap is another example. It is clearly speech and also clearly what? Music? Generations don't agree. Neither do composers. Neither do sociologists. One professor of music and science at Cambridge defines music this way. Music's yes, the author said musics, can be defined as those temporally patterned activities, individual and social, that involve the production and perception of sound and have no evident and immediate efficacy or fixed consensual reference. <laughs> That's not exactly the way everyone would describe music. 
The definition of music has been so tough to determine that neuroscientist Seth Horowitz, in his book, The Universal Sense, titled a chapter, quote, $10 to the first person who can define music and get a musician, a psychologist, a composer, a neuroscientist, and someone listening to an iPod to agree, close quote. And yet, at some level, we all know what music is, as did our ancestors. Music has tempo, changes in frequency, and something we call timbre, the quality that separates the sound of a sitar from the sound of a violin, for example. It is often associated with movement, such as dancing. It is a real phenomenon, even if it is elusive to define. Some scientists think we are born musical. You can certainly watch babies respond to music, swaying and responding with glee to specific intervals. They even love it when parents talk to them in musical speech called parentese, which is rhythmic and high-pitched with long, drawn-out vowels. Music has been a part of the cultural expression of virtually every culture ever studied. It may even extend into prehistoric times. A 35,000-year-old flute made from bird bone has been discovered, to cite just one example. If every culture has some form of musical expression, and if babies so readily respond to it, some scientists say music must serve some evolutionary function. We must be hardwired for music, with regions in the brain specifically devoted to music. Harvard professor Steven Pinker begs to differ. Quote, I suspect that music is auditory cheesecake, an exquisite confection crafted to tickle the sensitive spots of at least six of our mental faculties, close quote. He writes in How the Mind Works. Like music, people love cheesecake, and they have for a very long time. A recipe for cheesecake was found around 5th century BCE. But that does not mean the brain has a region specifically dedicated to cheesecake. We are hardwired to respond, not to cheesecake specifically, Pinker says, but to fats and sugars. These major energy boosters were somewhat rare in the lean world of the Serengeti. Because of their scarcity, our brains became sensitized, dedicated, you might say, to detecting the presence of fats and sugars. Because of their value, our brains rewarded their consumption with a powerful jolt of pleasure. Pinker makes a similar argument for music. He thinks music stimulates specific regions in the brain that are actually hardwired to process non-musical inputs. There is no reason to go after evolutionary arguments that explain dedicated musical modules in the brain, Pinker posits, for a very practical reason. There are none. So the matter is unsettled on why music exists, and scientists don't agree on how to even define music. Still, researchers forge ahead with studies on cognition and social skills. They've discovered fascinating ways that music may benefit the brain. The benefits just aren't the ones that the average person thinks they are. What music training does for the brain. Ray Vizcara was an award-winning music and band teacher in a Los Angeles high school. He took kids who had no musical training, and he whipped them into shape with such skill and such speed that the kids were soon winning all-city contests. That's saying something, given that Los Angeles is ground zero for musical contests. The L.A. City Council singled him out for a special honor in 2011. And then he lost his job. 
In a round of budget cuts and layoffs, he didn't have enough seniority to stay. The story was written up in the Los Angeles Times. Most of my wife's friends are professional musicians, and they were outraged. They saw his layoff as one more sad example of music falling to the wayside now that schools emphasize standardized tests, which favor reading and math. Invariably, the conversation turned to questions about the value of keeping music in schools. Doesn't music help improve test scores in reading and math? They asked me. My response is not what they expect. It's not a simple story, I usually respond. Then I start listing the variables. When they say music, do they mean listening to music all the time? Or do they mean music training, like what the band teacher did with his students? Both involve exposure to music, but are hardly the same thing. Does help mean changing an SAT score? How about cognitive processes not generally covered by standardized tests? Do those count? Usually they're talking about the effect of music lessons on reading ability, math scores, or intelligence in general. And in that case, I have bad news. Made worse because I first need to spend a few minutes giving a statistics lesson. The lesson centers around something called an R-value. An R-value is a quantifiable linear association between two variables. It measures the tightness of their relationship. R-values are assigned a number between negative 1 and 1. As an R-value gets closer to 1, there is an increasingly positive relationship between the two variables. My wife, to give one example, loves chocolate. Every time she eats it, she breaks out into a big smile. The relationship between chocolate and smile is tight. We could easily assign it an R-value of 1. In science, we use R-values when reviewing multiple investigations done over a period of years to look for patterns, called a meta-analysis. That's usually the kind of study done to analyze whether music is associated with a boost in academic or cognitive performance. Let's look at the actual results in a few areas rumored to be true. Music training improves math scores. The best score in the literature gives the association an R-value of 0.16. That's not much. Music training improves reading ability. This sports an R-value of about 0.11. In more recent studies, researchers are beginning to detect improvement in reading skills of musicians compared to non-musicians, but more research is needed. Music training improves IQ. The answer again is no. Musicians are smarter, but the reason may be that smarter people take music lessons. Music training improves something useful for academics, right? Yes. Spatiotemporal reasoning. That's the kind of reasoning that allows you to, among other things, rotate three-dimensional images in your head. This is the kind of skill used by an architect or engineer. There's an R-value of 0.32 between the two if you take group instruction in piano, 0.48 if you take individual lessons. This is not an impressive track record taken together. Nonetheless, R-values even lower than these can make headlines. One of my favorite examples is the so-called Mozart effect. Listening to Mozart, the news stories claimed, will improve your ability to do math. An entire cottage industry grew up around this phenomenon, selling DVDs and CDs marinated in Mozart, then marketed to anxious parents worried about their child's cognitive development. 
At one point, the governor of Georgia issued classical music CDs to the parents of every newborn in the state. The basis of all this enthusiasm was a tiny little paper that got a giant dollop of publicity because it was published in the prestigious journal Nature. The paper showed that when undergraduate students listened to 10 minutes of Mozart just before taking spatial tests, their scores improved. The boost was not strong, and the statistical analysis was even less so. The R-value was a miserable 0 0.06. Nature issued a critique of the paper a month later, questioning the finding. Scientists who tried to replicate the results found that any pleasurable listening or reading experiences had the same effect, one lasting about 15 minutes. But that not-so-shiny fact generated got almost no publicity. The lead author of the original study has denounced the cottage industry and years later reflected that the money Georgia's governor appropriated for the music CDs might have been better spent on music education in the public schools. That study was published more than 20 years ago. But even when I lecture on brain science today, I encounter people who think classical music is good for your brain. Happily, music does do the brain some good. First, we'll look at the effects of taking music lessons, and then the effects of listening to music. Musicians are better listeners. Let's say you are in a lab listening to some audio that is familiar and predictable. All of a sudden, the scientist inserts some change into the sound you are hearing, a rhythmic pattern change or a pitch change, for example. This alteration could be dramatic or subtle, but the scientist is interested in one question. Did you detect it? The more subtle the change you can detect, the higher your score is. Musicians score better than non-musicians on such tests. But here's the interesting thing. They also score better when the audio being played is speech, not music. For example, musicians show more robust neurological stimulation than non-musicians to the frequency changes of their native tongue. Musicians also are better able to pick out and pay attention to a specific sound in a room full of distracting noises. The fancy name for this is auditory stream segregation. Music training boosts language skills. In one study, researchers gave children twice weekly music lessons for a school year using a musical curriculum designed to teach pre-reading and writing skills. The children's neuroarchitecture changed in a way that boosts both motor skills, writing, and auditory skills word recognition, direct improvements in language processing. Ten-year-olds who have been practicing a musical instrument for at least three years see a boost in both their vocabulary and nonverbal reasoning skills over children who don't. Kids who start music lessons prior to first grade show superior sensory motor integration when they are adults. These findings alone make a strong case for parents starting music lessons before age seven. Musical training provides direct improvements in working memory, not only in the phonological loop, but also in the visual-spatial sketchpad. See the Miguel Nydorf story in the memory chapter for more on that. Working memory is a key constituent of executive function. Executive function predicts students' future undergraduate performances better than their SAT scores or even their IQs. Selecting and focusing on relevant stimuli from a host of choices is also a component of executive function. 
any assistance music provides in this domain and helping students pick out specific auditory streams in a room filled with irrelevant noise is one big example is probably a good thing for kids. Taken together, these studies make a case for supporting music education. In the journal Nature Reviews Neuroscience, researchers Nina Krauss and Bharath Chandra Sakharan write of the studies on listening. The beneficial effects of music training on sensory processing confer advantages beyond music processing itself. This argues for an improvement in the quality and quantity of music training in schools. Huh. Music to Ravis ears, no doubt. The link between speech and music. Why would music training benefit speech? We know that music and speech are not processed identically in the human brain, but we also know they share many common features. Take rhythm, for one. People can speak in a pulsed pattern, as when reading a Shakespearean play, or a poem, or a rap. As any drummer will tell you, rhythm is very much a part of the musical experience, too. Take pitch, for another. When people are finished speaking a sentence, the pitch of their voice invariably lowers. When people ask a question, their voice invariably rises. Pitch variation is a key part of speech. It is also one of the signature hallmarks of music. Music processing in the brain may, I believe, be conceptually likened to a Venn diagram, where two circles partially overlap to create a shared region. The brain has regions that are speech-specific, call it the red domain, and the brain has regions that are music-specific, call it the blue domain. Both speech and music also share some regions in common, psychologically and physiologically. With apologies to Alice Walker, color it purple. The brain keeps its separate regions quite separate, as we know from cases like Monica, a Canadian nurse who suffers from a condition called congenital amusia. Monica can't carry a tune in a bucket. Neither can many members of her family. Her condition, however, is not just that she can't match the pitch she hears in a song. Studies show that Monica cannot discriminate between notes. She literally can't tell one note from another, can't determine if one is sour compared to another, can't detect melodic patterns of any kind. With respect to music, she is completely tone deaf. Monica does not enjoy listening to music. It appears to be a source of stress, as perhaps her schoolmates could attest. Monica was in her church choir and school band as a little girl. You would never know that Monica has pitch discrimination issues if you struck up a conversation with her, however. She speaks just like the rest of us. Her voice goes down when she finishes a declarative sentence, she's no valley girl, and her voice goes up when she is finished with a question. Monica can detect these changes in pitch in both her voice and the voice of anyone else. In another case of Amusia, a child attempted piano lessons. His instructor soon found out he could not discriminate between two pitches and also could not keep time. When it came to speech, though, it was a different story. He fluently spoke three languages besides his native tongue. It seems odd that people can detect pitch changes when their brains decide they are listening to speech, but they become completely addled if their brain decides they are listening to music. When sound waves enter your ear, how does the brain determine whether you are listening to environmental noise, speech, or music? 
This question turns out to be important for a variety of reasons. As we shall see later, people who have lost speech abilities can often regain them through exposure to music. That doesn't happen if all they hear is the spoken word. How does that work? What is the brain's criteria for distinguishing music? Scientists don't know. We just know that the brain at some point decides to separate music from speech. However, it's the purple section of our Venn diagram, the area where the neurological processing domains for speech and music overlap, that is most interesting to the question at hand. This overlap is the reason that music training affects aspects of speech. If you improve one, you can also improve the other. Music lessons improve social skills. What else can music training do besides, of course, make people better musicians? Watch the jazz band the Pat Metheny Group play Have You Heard Live and you may get an idea. Pat Metheny is a bushy-haired American jazz guitarist and composer, winner of 19 Grammy Awards. He has been making records since the mid-1970s. I saw a video of him performing live in Japan in 1995, and the group's improvisatory prowess was on full display. Besides the joyous, virtuoso performance, the impression that strikes me most is the almost ridiculous cooperation of the band. There are five saxes, five trumpets, two vocalists, a string bass, keyboards, several rhythm sections, and probably a bunch of people I can't see. There is plenty of room for error, yet that is exactly what you don't hear. The musicians switch off performing solos throughout the song, tossing around melodies like frisbees, and yet they play as one person. They don't even have to look at each other. They can't. In fact, the stage is almost dark. The musicians signal to each other using the subtle nonverbal cues so legendary in jazz performance creating musical dialogues only seasoned musicians can make intelligible. It is exhilarating, magical stuff. How do they achieve such coordination? Is there something about performing in a musical group that trains people to look for subtle cues in others in the service of coordinating a goal-oriented activity? Behavior done for the good of a group, or for the good of another individual, is termed pro-social. The action could be as exotic as allowing another musician solo space in a jazz concert so that he or she may shine, or it could be as mundane as making dinner when your spouse is sick. Pro-social skills, you can imagine, profoundly influence a person's social abilities in all aspects of life. Does music training confer social, not just cognitive benefits? You don't have to be good enough to play in Mr. Matheny's band to know that is exactly what one finds. The research we'll look at next spans the age spectrum from adults to infants. Musicians are better at detecting emotion. If you've ever cried because you were yelled at, you know words convey emotions. You can find out what somebody is feeling by detecting how they're saying something. We call such abilities vocal affective discrimination skills. Researchers asked, how good are trained musicians at these skills compared to non-musicians? In one study, English-speaking musicians and non-musicians heard various emotions expressed in Tagalog, a Philippine language that was foreign to them. They were asked to identify any emotion they heard. How good were they at detecting the emotional information in what was being said? even though they could not understand the words? 
The results were dramatic. Trained musicians were champs, while non-musicians were surprisingly bad at it. Musicians were especially good at discerning sadness and fear. They actually scored higher when listening to Tagalog than when listening to their native English. Studies like these laid the groundwork for demonstrating that music might improve social skills. Another research effort involved college-age students who had received musical training for 10-plus years. The researchers eavesdropped on the students' brain activity using non-invasive imaging technologies while playing various auditory cues. They were specifically interested in the students' brain stems, the primal, most evolutionarily ancient parts of our brains. What exactly were their brains doing as they listened to the audio cues compared to the brains of non-musicians? Consistent with previous findings, the researchers found that musicians outpaced the non-musicians in discriminating emotional information. These undergraduates were especially good at detecting subtle changes in the sound, timing, and pitch of a baby's cry, for heaven's sake. Getting this right can be enormously difficult to do. We call such talents fine-grained discrimination. Extending the previous findings, the researchers showed that musicians' brain stems were more efficient at this neural processing task. Specifically, their brains exhibited increased time-domain responses to complex emotional information. Their brains, not just their behaviors, were better. Much research remains to be done, however. It's unclear whether musical training directly improves this ability, or whether people who are naturally better at fine-grained discrimination have a tendency to like music and stick with music lessons. Music lessons make kids more empathetic. Researchers wanted to know whether music training could directly cause changes in social ability. Fifty kids, ages 8 to 11, were randomly assigned to one of three groups. The first group took group music lessons for an entire academic year. The delightful curriculum consisted of rhythmic improvisation, musical games, melodic repetition, and shared musical experiences. The second group played games that also involved imitating and interactive experiences, but verbal mostly, no music. The third group simply attended the regular school year. The question was, how good were the children's social abilities at the end of the school year? Before the experiments commenced, Researchers established baseline measures by testing the children's social skills, such as empathy, including theory-of-mind abilities. The children in the music group had the most improved empathy scores. Like the adults, these kids had a stronger ability to decode the emotional information in their social surroundings, both verbally and non-verbally. They also were better at imitating facial expressions. The children who took the music class also had more empathetic responses to artificially posed situations, as measured by the Bryant's Index of Empathy, an instrument used to measure pediatric empathy. The other two groups showed no such improvements. Said lead researcher Tal Chen Rabinowich, Overall, the capacity for empathy in children that participated in our musical group interaction program significantly increased. The experiment has since been replicated with six-year-olds by researchers in Canada. Infants are more social, too. So far, we can detect the social benefits of music lessons in older adults, undergraduates, and elementary school children. How far back can you push this? 
Can you detect social benefits if you give music lessons to infants? You can't go much earlier than that. And amazingly, the researchers found similar findings. Six-month-old babies took a parent and child music class for six months. The instruction was based roughly on Suzuki methodology, one that requires active group participation. Activities involved lots of singing, lots of banging on instruments, and learning songs in class, which parents were asked to repeat at home. Not surprisingly, this group was called the active group. A second group served as the control. These parents and tots instead listened to baby Einstein music CDs while playing with toys together. Predictably, they were called the passive group. You can actually measure social competence in babies using a complex instrument called the Infant Behavior Questionnaire, IBQ, which assesses infants on 14 aspects of temperament. Researchers measured both groups to get a baseline. Then the experiment commenced. How did the babies do? If you are a music advocate, get ready for some spine-tingling data. The active group outpaced the passive group socially in virtually every way you can measure it. They smiled more. They laughed more. They were much easier to calm down when they were stressed. In limitation assessments, a measure of how well you react to an unexpected stimuli, they exhibited much less stress than their passive counterparts. The infant's gestures, such as waving goodbye and pointing, were improved, a companion paper showed, and that may be important. Such pre-linguistic communication leads to more positive social interactions between parent and child, and that improves infant cognition in virtually every way you can measure it. What's going on here? We don't know for sure. The passive group was exposed to the same amount of music as the active group, as well as the same amount of social interaction. Making music may simply provide an environment where one gets to exercise greater social cooperation and generally pro-social behaviors than when playing with toys. In this view, the secret sauce lies not with the music, but with the interaction. Or it could be the music itself, for both groups of children experience sustained interaction with their parents. Either way, a method involving music has been found to make kids more empathetic, more relational. Which is the point. Though these, and several other experiments, are interventions, showing whether music training directly caused the effects, the vast majority of studies are associative in nature. Still, taken together, these studies suggest, sometimes strongly, that music training boosts foundational speech processing tasks, spatial skills, the detection of emotional cues, empathy, and baby-sized social skills. Next, let's look at the effects of simply listening to music. Music changes your mood. The word is breast, my mother yelled from the kitchen. This brought my 13-year-old mind very quickly to attention. She clarified, music soothes the savage breast. I believe it was from some old play. And then her voice trailed off. I was in the TV room watching a Bugs Bunny cartoon called Hurdy Gurdy Hair, and my mother had overheard a line. The plot was standard Looney Tunes fare, with dollops of humor for both adults and children involving an escaped gorilla now after Bugs. After a lot of antics, the gorilla traps Bugs Bunny in the back room of an apartment. Conveniently, and in the nick of time, Bugs finds a violin and begins playing. Immediately, the gorilla calms down, then begins moving to the music. Bugs says snarkily to the camera, 
They say music calms the savage beast. I did not see what happened next because of my mother's comment. She was right, of course. According to scholars, the line is from the pen of 17th century playwright William Congreve and properly reads, Music hath charms to soothe the savage breast. Either way, music's ability to affect one's mood and subsequent behavior is a common theme in literature. Researchers will tell you that the reason is biochemical. It is a surprisingly well-established fact that music can induce hormonal changes. These changes result in alterations of mood. Well, duh, say music fans around the world. Anybody who has ever listened to their favorite song could testify to that. It is not earth-shattering to find that music can induce pleasure. Enjoyment arousal, as it's called, is sometimes accompanied by a temporary boost in certain skills. For that, we can thank three hormones, dopamine, cortisol, and oxytocin. Dopamine. Noted Canadian researcher Robert Zatori has studied people's emotional reactions to music for a long time. He and his colleagues have found that when people hear their very favorite music, I mean spine-tingling, awe-inspiring, fly-me-to-the-moon music, their bodies dump dopamine into a specific part of the brain. Dopamine is a neurotransmitter involved in mediating processes from feeling pleasure to memory formation. It floods the striatal system, a curved structure in the middle of the brain that's involved in many functions, including evaluating the significance you assign to a given stimulus. Zatori found that when you hear music that gives you goosebumps, called musical frizzen, the striatal system is activated via dopamine release. Music may soothe the savage human by exploiting these mechanisms. Cortisol. Surgery is not a pleasurable experience for most people. Some patients are genuinely freaked out, however, to the point of requiring medical intervention. Researchers asked, could music reduce the stress of people about to undergo surgery? To answer the question, they divided 372 patients into two groups. The first group would listen to music before going under the knife. The second group would take an anti-stress pill prior to surgery. Who experienced the least amount of stress, as measured by respiration and heart rate, amongst other assays? The music group. They felt 13% less anxious than the stress pill group before their surgeries. Listening to classical or meditation music had the greatest effect. Oxytocin. Oxytocin plays a huge role in social bonding. This talented molecule stimulates temporary feelings of trust, orgasms, lactation, and even birth. Pitocin, a drug that induces contractions, is a synthetic form of oxytocin. It even gets some mammals, like the prairie vole, to mate for life. Given this social track record, it is a big deal when the brain increases its production of oxytocin as a response to some external cue. Researchers have discovered that when people sing as a group, as they would in a choir, oxytocin courses through their brains. An uptick in the hormone is a fairly reliable indicator of feelings of trust, love, and acceptance. This may explain why people in a choir often report feeling so close to each other. University of Montreal researcher Dan Levitin, in an interview with NPR, said the same of playing music together. Quote, We now know that when people play music together, oxytocin is released. This is the bonding hormone that's released when people have an orgasm together. 
And so you have to ask yourself, that can't be a coincidence. There had to be some evolutionary pressure there. Language doesn't produce it. Music does. This flies in the face of Pinker's auditory cheesecake, as you may have noted. These data suggest a mechanism whereby music makes people happy, calms them down, maybe even makes them feel close to each other. I can personally attest to these feelings. My wife is a classically trained pianist and composer. She scores documentaries. In the past few years, she has really gotten into Irish, Scottish, and Celtic music. One gorgeous Gaelic song she regularly listens to speaks to me also. I'm hydrated with this glorious cocktail of haunting, calming, restful feelings right from its opening bars. That turned out to be important on a day we had driven from Seattle to Vancouver, British Columbia. We were on vacation, and I was not having a restful time at all. It was downtown at rush hour, Vancouver at its worst, and I was in a slow burn trying to find our hotel, my tension increasing with every missed intersection. Stress hormones were boiling my blood, something my wife is good at detecting. <laughs> she found the CD with that Gaelic song, slipped it into the car stereo, played it full volume. From a distance, I detected the calming feelings. I attempted to give in to them and immediately felt peace wash over me. We quickly found our lodgings. As I can attest, the calming ability of music can be very pleasurable especially for the other people in the car. But more importantly, these hormones represent a powerful effort from researchers to transform anecdotal ephemeral impressions about the power of music into the exacting physical world of cells and molecules. These findings may have medical implications. The Promise of Music Therapy Using music as medicine for sick patients has a long history. The Greek physician Hippocrates prescribed it for mentally ill patients. During World War I, hospitals in the UK employed musicians to play for wounded soldiers in convalescence. It seemed not only to calm them down, but also to reduce their pain. None of this was measured in any formal way at the time, but the observation was so persistent that the practice continued into World War II. Observations like these eventually led to the establishment of formal music therapy associations. Slowly, but surely, these anecdotal observations attracted the notice of the research community, and clear findings have emerged. Music has been shown to aid speech recovery in head trauma patients, for example. Gabriella Giffords, the U.S. representative who survived a gunshot wound to the head, regained regular speech in part by singing. Researchers think it works by forcing the brain to sign up unused regions of the brain for speech duty. Nobody knows why music does this. Dr. Oliver Sacks, interviewed about Gifford's recovery in a documentary, said, Nothing activates the brain so extensively as music. It has been possible to create a new language area in the right hemisphere. And that blew my mind. Music improves the recovery rates of specific cognitive abilities in stroke patients. In one study, patients who underwent six months of music therapy were compared to patients who got talk therapy. The results were extraordinary. In measurements of verbal memory, the talk therapy patients achieved a score of seven. That's not so good. The music group achieved a score of 23. That's really good. Measurements of focused attention showed a similar disparity. 
the talk group therapy scored a 1, while the music therapy group scored an 11. In overall language skills, at the end of six months, the talk therapy group scored a 5, the music therapy group scored a 21. Among stroke patients with motor difficulties, including those with Parkinson's and cerebral palsy, researchers find similar positive results. Music therapy patients routinely outscore patients exposed to more traditional therapies in measurements of arm movements and of gait as they walk. Music seems to serve as a predictable metronome that helps people coordinate their movements. Most of these studies have been done on adults, often our oldest citizens. What about some of our youngest? Prematurely born infants living in a hospital's neonatal intensive care unit, NICU, gained weight more rapidly when music was played. Music helped them learn how to suck at their mother's breasts more readily. It also reduced their overall stress levels, which may explain the other findings. One study found that female, though not male, infants stay in the unit would be decreased by 11 days if music were played compared to no music. It is now standard for hospitals across the country to pipe calm, peaceful music into their NICUs. Why does this music have these effects? Again, we don't know for sure. One idea, the arousal and mood hypothesis, was published in 2001. It proposed that the three hormones explain why music speeds recovery. It's still just an hypothesis, but it's paving the way for some serious neuroscience. So stay tuned. More ideas. Too many of these intriguing studies don't prove cause, and they're all done in a lab setting. I'd like to see a school district take up research on music programs and help determine the effects of music training in a real-world setting. As soon as kids enter first grade, schools would randomly assign a large number of them to one of two groups. The first group would take lessons on a musical instrument with formal instruction and ensemble training. Lessons would be daily, consistent, and as mandatory as math class. The program would last at least 10 years, ending when the students are juniors in high school. The second group would receive no music training. With this kind of large-scale, long-term research program, we could see whether students who get music training perform better on tests involving speech proficiency at the end of the 10-year period than those without the training, and language arts, and second languages. Since emotional regulation has such a powerful effect on academic performance, see the stress chapter, additional questions are relevant as well. We could see if the kids with music training have better emotional regulation, if they get better grades, if they're more cooperative in group settings not related to music, if music training reduces antisocial behavior, such as bullying, at school. Music training almost certainly teaches discipline, a form of impulse control. You can continue practicing for 10 years, even if you'd rather not. If the answer was affirmative to even one of these questions, we would end up with a truly interesting principle. One way to create a higher-functioning student is to hire back band teacher Ray Viscara. And if it comes time to cut the school budget, the last activity to go would be formal musical training.